Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. Okay, so when we entered into this week, I think the disciples had some pretty heightened expectations that in some way, Jesus would... um, do something maybe in a spectacular sense to prove that he was actually the Messiah. I think they had in their mind that he was going to establish a kingdom. And with that meant that there were going to be positions in that kingdom for them. And I believe that, you know, the triumphal entry seemed to uh, back their expectations and their excitement. And then we ended up in chapter 13. And that's when it all begins to go inward to them, personal, Jesus teaching them. He is beginning to show them and focus in on them what is actually coming. And we, when we looked at chapter 13, we saw Jesus act out what I call a parable when he took off his outer garment and he wrapped the towel around his waist, taking on the form of the lowest servant, and he showed them what it was going to take to be his disciples, that he washed their feet, he showed them humility and servitude, and they would have to do the same. If this is going to work, you have to love one another as I have loved you. And we're gonna find out why down the road. Because I'm going to tell you what, if we don't love one another, the stinking world sure ain't going to do it. They're going to find that out real soon. All right, so he's showing them this. So you have this amazing experience with the washing of the feet. But in the middle of that chapter, do you remember, they had some things told to them that were very upsetting. Number one, that one of them would betray right? Keep in mind, they were arguing when they came in for the whole uh, feet washing thing, right? Over who is the greatest. So we know they really don't get it. But they're told that one would betray. And then Jesus tells them, I'm going to the Father. I'm leaving. I'm going to go to the Father. You can't come where I am going. So they're finding out that they're going to be separated. They're going to be apart. He will no longer be with them. And then they find out or Peter especially finds out, that even Peter, the one who says, no way, I'm going to be with you wherever you go, and I don't even care if it takes my life. Oh, really, Peter? You're actually going to deny me. And don't think that that is unique to Peter, because in the other Gospels, we find out what? They're all going to split, all right? Peter just gets to be the one who opens his mouth, and he's going to be told, you know that mouth you got right there that is claiming Uh, that you are with me no matter what, that same mouth is going to deny me before the cock crows in the morning. And so they're finding this out. And then we have the whole um, dialogue of do not let your hearts be troubled. Why did he say that? Because their hearts are troubled. They are stirred. They are all stirred up. And he then tells them about the place. Listen, I know this is hard, and I, don't, I know you don't understand, and you really don't understand, but I want you to know in advance 
You are so upset that we're going to be apart. And I want you to understand, you are my family. At the end of this thing, at the end of this road, there is a room with your name on it. I will build it on to my father's house because you are my family. I, we will be together. And then Thomas, remember all the questions? He goes, you, uh, Jesus says, and you know the way. And Thomas goes, uh, we don't even, if I don't know the destination, how can I know the way? And he said, because you're looking at the way. I am the way. I am the truth revealer. I am life. I'm the way. I will come and get you and I will take you to myself so that you can be where I am. So he tells them about the place that he has reserved for them. He says, focus on a person, me. It's all about me. I am the way the truth, and the life. And so in other words, he's saying, we're no longer going to be physically together, right? I'm handing you over to the Father. Philip says, okay, then show us the Father. And Jesus says, you don't have to be troubled about the Father. Do you still not know who I am? If you know me, you know the Father. He's comforting them. He's making them aware. And then he says, um, basically, his hot power version, our relationship is not ending. It's just getting started. You haven't seen anything yet. There are going to be greater works. And remember, we talked about that, not based greater in their sensationalism, but greater in their magnitude. You're going to see greater works, this great multiplication, this wheat that dies and then begins to multiply and duplicate itself. He is saying my distance does not mean a lack of involvement, right? What is going to, what's going to um, fill the gap of the distance? This Holy Spirit by prayer, right? He says, um, you ask me anything in my name, and I will give it to you. We know that the work of redemption is going to end, but Jesus's job or work of intercession on our behalf will continue as he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And if we ask anything in unity with him, like Jesus was unified with the Father, he says, you will get it. And this is how it works. And he is constantly explaining how this works. I will do this so that the Father, this is still all in chapter 14, that the Father would be glorified through the Son. What has Jesus' whole ministry been about? Bringing glory to the Father through the Son. He says that will continue. How will it continue? Through you. It'll continue through you. In other words, he is inviting them or beginning to share with them that they have been asked to join in the fellowship with the Trinity. We will be in Christ who is in the Father. Holy Spirit in us, the power, we're in fellowship with that kind of power. And so he promises that power. He says that I will ask my Father and he will send you who? Another helper of the same kind, an advocate, strength, helper, counselor. And it says, I'm not, and then he goes on to say, I'm not leaving you as orphans. 
Let's read this part, by the way. Chapter 14, verse 18. I'm just, because I don't remember if we even read this part last time. I will not leave you as orphans. This is in chapter 14. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my father and you are in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not the Iscariot one, not the betrayer, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Like, how will we see you, but the whole world won't see you? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. That's huge. That is the purpose of this chapter right now. Be at peace, my friends. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of the world is coming and he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. I'm going to tell you what, you can read commentaries for days on every word of this text, but I'm going to sum up for you this end of 14. He's like, I'm not leaving you as orphans. An orphan, by definition, gets completely what? Deserted, left, no further contact. They're left. He's like, I'm not deserting you you will see me again. And is he talking about just like in the distant future? When do they see him again? After his resurrection, okay? You're going to see me again. And he basically says, and you will understand more then. Like you will have much more enlightenment, aha moments, when you see me once I am raised. After this, he said, you're gonna understand more. Um, you're gonna understand that I have life in myself. You're gonna understand that I laid my life down and I have the power to take it back up. That I am life. And you're gonna understand more that the Father is in me and I am in the Father, that I am God. And whoever keeps my commandments loves me. Let, let's talk about that for a second. What are his commandments? What are his words? Look and live. Believe in me and you will have eternal life. And if you believe in me, you will do what I do. And that is what? 
Love one another as I have loved you. And you can study that for days. It encompasses pretty much everything. But it is if you believe. And remember, the entire gospel of John has been written for this purpose. I have written these specific things so that you would believe. Believe what? That I am the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Messiah, that I am the Son of God. And by believing in me, you will have life. You will have life. And what does that life produce, by the way? You will love one another. That will be the number one characteristic that the world will see in someone that has been born from above, is love. And he goes on to basically say, we are a family. Because you love me, right? Because you love me, which means you are in me and I am in you. The Father loves you and I love you. And he says, and I will manifest myself to you. You will know me. And Judah says, I don't get it. Well, I know. I mean, would you? I don't get it. You're, you're going to show yourself to us? How are we going to see you? Like, how are you going to come manifest? Because what did they think about the Messiah? When he manifested himself, the whole world would see. Now, is there a day coming where that will be? Yeah, but not right here. And he says, I'll tell you how. Because the Father and I, the Spirit, we will make our home with you. In other words, I'm the temple of God, he's been saying, but what? You too, you are living temples of God that we've made our home with you, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that we're, we're together, we're a family um, on this earth. We will make a home with you. And then he goes on to say, I mean, I'm summarizing this because that was a lot of words, wasn't it? He goes on to say, I personally wanted to tell you these things at this time. These things are so important. There is a place. The way is a person. And don't worry, I am sending the power for this duplication to happen. We are a family. I will be with you, not in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense. I will make my home with you. And I want you all to know this at this time. Don't worry. The helper, because I mean, can you imagine they're leaving? They got a hundred jillion questions. They don't truly understand even everything they've been told. And he's leaving. And he's like, don't worry. The helper, he's just like me. He's going to continue to teach. And not only will he continue to teach you, he's also going to make you remember everything I have already taught you. He's there. So my friends, he says, be at peace. Be at peace. I have told you these things in advance. I have made a way. I have sent the power for your endurance. Be at peace. And this is the whole point of, of this 
section, and then he repeats one more time. Yes, I am going away, but we'll come back for you. And if you fully knew me, okay, what does that really mean? Well, or fully loved me, he said. But I think those are synonymous. To be fully loved is to be fully known. If you, if you really comprehended what all was going on, you would be rejoicing for me and everyone else because I'm going back to the Father and he is greater than me. Now, oh boy, that's caused some trouble, right? <laughs> you could go to every commentary on the planet and read for days about that. It is not suggesting that <clears throat> that God is greater in essence. He's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We are one in nature and essence, but we are three persons. They have roles. It is uh, the will of the Father. How is it accomplished? Everything is accomplished this way. Through his Son, by the power, the engine behind it, of the Holy Spirit. And he is saying in that position, and remember, all through the Bible, it says that Jesus submitted. He submitted to the will of his Father. So that position is greater. He is overlooking the entire thing. And he's saying, if you truly knew what was about to happen, if you truly love, fully loved me, you'd be rejoicing because I get to go back and be seated and man, what you're about to be a part of. If you have fully known, fully loved me, you'd be rejoicing. I'm going back to the Father. He is greater than me. And then he says, now, I'm not gonna talk to you much more. Okay, now he's got a few more things to say. I mean, we got a couple chapters. But at one point, he's gonna say, the talking will be done. Why? Because the ruler of this world is coming. Who is that? It's Satan maneuvering who? Judas, who is bringing this whole thing together, okay? And so you have this situation just as the deceiver used the body of the serpent to deceive this this thing going on behind what you see. You have it here in this as well. He is the ruler of this world. Why? I'll tell you why. Because when we sin, we advocate, advocate, what's that word? Abdicated, right? Our role to him. And he became the ruler of the air, it says, the ruler of this present world the forces behind, and he has entered into Judas. And so basically what he is saying is, it's been put into place. It's about to happen. Judas is coming. It is all beginning, but there are forces motivating this behind that you do not know. Same today. We see people and leaders and movements, but we forget that there, is, there are forces behind. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. So there is this war going on, all right? And so he is saying, but then he tells him that he has no claim on me. Let me make that clear. 
In no way, he's got nothing on me. I'm innocent. He has no foothold in me. He does not control me in any way. I am not a slave to sin, not at all. He is showing his purity as the Holy One of Israel, the perfect sacrifice. He has no claim in me. What I am doing, I am doing so that the world sees that I love my Father. Hmm. Love and obedience, somehow, they are intertwined. Obedience is an expression of that love. Obedience comes out of this unity, no separation, no division. What does love look like? It looks like obedience. That's what it looks like. And you could sit and ponder on that all day long. And he's going to give us an analogy pretty soon for how that works. So the message coming out of chapter 14, I would say, is a message of what's coming, the coming. Right? He's prepared a place. It's to a person. This power is coming. It's what's coming. But in chapter 15, I think the theme is no longer what's coming. It's the idea of remaining. What will occur during the wait? Remaining, abiding. In this chapter, our Lord gives instructions concerning how his disciples could maintain fellowship and fruitfulness in difficult days because they were coming. They thought this was going to be a quick thing. (laughs) Wasn't a quick thing. This was going to be a trial of endurance. It's going to be a while The nature of the relationship between Christ and his followers was about to change from a physical one to a spiritual one. And the means of sustaining this kind of relationship he describes to us, and he does it by using an analogy because they don't get it. How do we know they don't get it? Go back to 14. How many questions did they have? Every time he made a statement, they didn't understand. They ask, they ask, they ask. There's all kinds of uncertainty and question. So what does he do when we don't know? He does his best to use something concrete to explain something that we can't comprehend. He tries to use something we can comprehend to explain to us something that we cannot. And so he uses an analogy of a vine, okay? So let me just read some of this before we start to analyze it. John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch is the not, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you may bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 
Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Oh, there's so much there. He uses the analogy of a vine. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was often likened to a vine. All right, look at Psalm 80. We're going to explore this for a little bit. I'm going to start reading in 7. Psalm 80, starting in 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. <clears throat> the mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine. So he likens the nation of Israel to a vine that he has taken out of Egypt and planted in the promised land. And at first, what? It flourished, but somewhere along the way, it, it got trampled, okay? Look at Isaiah 5. This is probably the biggest one. Let me sing of my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. But what did it yield? Wild grapes. It did not yield what he planted it to yield. All right, lastly, look at Jeremiah 2, 21. It says, yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? And so he uses a symbol, right, that was often the symbol of Israel. Um, it's basically, remember how I told you that the palm branches were... Uh, on the coins during the time of the Maccabees, you also have vines stamped on coins. Not only that, um, in the days that the Lord walked the earth, there was a huge filigree of a vine, a golden vine that was on the entrance to Herod's temple. Some people say, and I mean massive, and they would actually bring as offerings golden grapes to be hung on it, to be attached, and leaves and different things. Some evaluate that it was worth over $12 million. I do not know. But as you read about it, so it just kind of makes me wonder, as because at the end of 14, he says, okay, now let's go. Like they're leaving the upper room, and they're beginning to walk. Where are they headed? They're headed to Gethsemane. They're headed to the Mount of Olives because that's coming. Right, so it makes you just wonder, and I'm just pondering. I mean, he could have walked and he could have seen grapevines because that's how he taught. But he could have also walked by the temple towards the Mount of Olives and there is that golden vine, this vineyard representing 
Israel, right? And look what he says in the first verse of chapter 15. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. That word true obviously can have kind of two connotations. It could be true as being the opposite of false, okay? And we could evaluate that, like he is the true way. There are other false ways and ideas. But it can also basically mean that it's true as it is used to be the ultimate realization of a heavenly reality, okay? So all through scripture, we see representations, earthly representations of true realities in the heavenlies. And he is saying, no, Israel was to represent the vine. They were set out to produce fruit. That's what the intention of, guess what? They failed. They did not produce the fruit that they were to produce. They produced a, they produced a wild fruit. They failed. But I'm telling you, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Israel was a failure. It never achieved its goal. And our Lord Jesus Christ, who came as the true vine, would accomplish it. So as the true vine, our Lord is the source of life and strength and fruit. There is a relationship of complete dependence between the branch and the vine. So what is he saying? It's no longer about being planted in Judaism. That does not produce. No. I am the vine. I am the vine. And in me, you will have absolute life. You will produce fruit. The vine supplies life-giving nourishment to the branches. And apart from it, there is no life. There's death. Isn't that what he's been saying all along? I mean, is this any different than any other thing he's been saying all along? Think about it, because I want to remind you. Do you remember the portraits that we went through? Has he not been using this form of teaching from the moment we started this chapter? The wedding. He's like, I am the groom. I am. I am the one that will make this marriage, this wedding possible. We started with the wedding and we're going to end with the marriage supper of the lamb. And he went out and called his bride. He paid her debt. He clothed her. He made that possible. I mean, he's showing them, I am the true bridegroom. That's, and it's a time of rejoicing. And he, remember, he said, I am the true temple. What you see, knock it down, but I will raise it up in three days. Isn't that what chapter one says? That he tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. He is the true realization of what is in the heavenlies. I am the true temple. He then goes on to say what? What was the next portrait? Nicodemus. No, I am the true teacher. I am wisdom. I am in life. If you know me, you must be born of the spirit. I am the true teacher of Israel. I'm the Messiah. He goes to the well. He begins to gather his people. What are they gonna look like? They're gonna look like from Nicodemus to the woman at the well, right? 
What is the difference between them? I think the greatest difference is this. Nicodemus had his hope in the wrong thing, and she had no hope at all. He is the hope. And so he's been showing us that he is the realization of all these things. And then, man, then we really see it when we get into the holy days. Because he is going to tell them, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am rest. I am the gift. Man was not given to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to man. I am your rest. He then goes on to say in the Passover, what? I am the bread of life. I am that bread that has come down from heaven. Life is found in me. How do you have it? You eat my flesh and you drink my blood. My word, my sacrifice abides in you. He's been telling them this all along in the same way. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. All of their symbols he's been using to show exactly who he is. I am the good shepherd. Not only am I the good shepherd, I am the door to the sheep gate. I lay down my life for my sheep. And now he is saying, I am the true vine. I am the true Israel. As branches, we are the visible manifestation of the life of the vine. We are the fruit bearers. And since Jesus is returning into heaven, he is saying that if we abide in him, we will produce his fruit. We will duplicate what comes out of the vine. The Lord once ministered in his earthly body, but now he ministers and reveals his life through us, his spiritual body. What Jesus began, he is telling the disciples they will continue. Our, our relationship is not over. It is just begun. It's the duplication of wheat. This is all done in relationship. So, the relationship is Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, but at the very beginning, he introduces somebody else. What does it say? There's the vine, there's the branches, and there's the gardener or the vine dresser, if that's what your, your uh, translation says. It is his job to ultimately tend the vine, cutting away the dead, and pruning what is alive. Now, <laughs> oh man, I've heard so many sermons on this section, and I've read so many commentaries, and when you get into that and you hear preaching on this, they always bring up the security of our salvation. Can we lose our salvation? Were they ever saved in the first place? Can you be a true branch and not produce fruit? Can, all of these kinds of things. And I'm going to do my best to keep it simple. Because I don't want you to ever forget he's talking to his disciples. What are they hearing? Because sometimes I think we take an analogy way too far. And when we do, it breaks down the analogy. And he is keeping it simple for them, describing something they understand to teach them something they don't. 
And so I, I'm gonna try to keep that simple myself and remember what is the context of this whole section? Is it to scare the bejeebers out of them? What is it to bring them? Peace. So if this really is the point of once saved, always saved, Peter's shaking in his shoes right now. And then you would have to question all the other statements that he said in Scripture as far as, so can they lose the room with their name on it? Can they trust him to come back? Um, is he really going to lose one of his sheep? Because you're not his sheep. If you hear his voice, you're his sheep, period. And if the sheep gets lost, I could have sworn it said he'd leave the 99 to go get the one. I believe he said that I will keep all that the Father has given me. I will not lose a one. So you, if, if you're going to talk about this branch that looks like a branch that is cut off and you're going to analyze it to death, you're going to come up with a lot, of, a lot of questions, and that's fine. Question it. But use the context and use other scriptures as well to analyze this. And later on, too, you're going to have to use what's at the bottom of the chapter when it says, you didn't choose me, I chose you, and I've elected you to produce fruit. So you're going to have to wrestle with that one, too. And so I'm going to try to keep it simple because I think that's how he intended it for his disciples. And I think it's a matter of life and death, period. And so, this is how I started that. <laughs> Lest the mention of removing unfruitful branches created any doubt or fear, Jesus assured the disciples that they had already demonstrated their genuineness. They had already been cleansed by faith in his word. Read chapter, read verse 3. I want us to see this. I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may, be, that it may bear more fruit. Listen to this. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And so he then says, now abide, okay? So he's already said they were clean. That is the same expression that he used earlier in the washing of the feet when Peter says, oh, don't wash my feet. And he says, well, if I don't wash your feet, you're not gonna have any part with me. And then Peter goes, well, dear Lord, wash me from head to toe. And he says, no, I don't need to because you're already what? Clean, right? Same word is clean. Um, he says, literally, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean. But then he says, but not all of you. His true followers were saved. They were clean. Only Judas was unclean. Why? Due to unbelief. I want, I want you to hear, for some of you geeks like me, I want you to hear, see some cool Greek words in this situation. All right. Uh, the word prune is the Greek word K-A-T-H. A-I-R-O. And what part of speech is it? He prunes those who, it's a verb, okay? And it means to make clean by purging. But then when he uses the word, you are already, you're clean, that word is tied with the word pruning. Listen to how it's spelled. 
It's K-A-T-H-A-R-O-S. It's not a verb. It is an adjective. It's describing something that has already been separated by purging. All right? So <clears throat> there's the uh, thesaurus says this. He whose inmost nature has been renovated does not need radical renewal, but only to be cleansed from every several fault into which we fall through contact with the unrenewed world. In my mind, the, we're looking at two different things. You are clean. You have been justified by the sacrifice that Jesus made and their belief that his word dwelt in them and they are already clean. But then there is a, an active salvation that happens that we call sanctification and that is going to involve pruning. That which is alive, we're going to keep alive. And we're going to prune so that life expands into fruitfulness. Is that painful at times? Yeah, it is. So I think you have that in context. But do you remember when Jesus says, but not all of you, right? But not all of you. Who is he talking about? Judas. So with this, the thought behind the branch that was dead, could there be that idea in the back of his head, this Judas, but not all of you? <clears throat> Some connection or proximity, but no life. Some connection to the vine, a proximity to it but no true life. How do we know that? It's dead. It's not producing fruit. <clears throat> so this brings to mind to me the parable of the sower, right? Matthew chapter 13. I think all of the, this is all agriculture. It's connected. What is the parable of the sower? That the seed is the word of God and the seed is good. No doubt about that. There's no debate in this parable. The seed's good. Nothing wrong with the seed. But the problem is the different soil the seed lands on. Do you remember the analogy? Some of the seed falls on a path. So it doesn't even get in dirt. And what happens? Falls on a hard heart. Birds take it. There's nothing. Okay. The other gets thrown on rocky ground. Shallow, right? Rock. There's some dirt there. And what happens? It springs up really quick. But then the sun scorches it because it doesn't have any roots. And then there are ones that are in the ground and it produces, but then the thorns, the, the world comes up and just chokes it out. But then there is the good soil. And when it's planted in the good soil, then a crop of grain grows. So as you think about that parable alone, there is an element of over time. Over time, we begin to see what the soil was like based on what happens to the fruit, the crop. So there's this element of time, which also reminds me of another agricultural parable, which is the wheat and the tare. 
or the wheat and the weeds. I just heard a good sermon on this last weekend. And that is in Matthew 13 as well, 24 through 30. The gist of that, do you remember? You're like, no, so tell us. Okay, there is a farmer and he went out and he planted wheat, all right? But in the middle of the night, some sneaky old uh, deceiver comes in and he plants wheat. And the, the kicker is that the kind of wheat he plants when it grows looks very much like the wheat. But the gardeners realize, oh my gosh, once it grew up, we've got wheat and we've got weeds. And the farmer didn't plant the, the weeds, the enemy planted it. But they're like, okay, do you want us to go yank out the weeds? And do you remember what he says? And by the way, it takes time for them to grow up and very big discernment to understand what's the, the wheat and what is the weed, right? But it takes time. And he, they're like, do you want us to go pull it up? And what does he say? No. Because if you go out trying to pull up the weeds, you're going to pull up some of the wheat. And so you need to relax. When the harvest comes, when the time comes, I will send the reapers. And they will harvest. And when they do, they will take the wheat to the barn and they will take the weed to the fire. I think this parable is simple that he's giving us. I think it simply means that if you abide, there will be life. And if you don't, the alternative is what? Death. And how will we know it? We're going to know it over time at the harvest. And we're going to tell by fruit but here's the thing I do know. Tending the garden is the job of the vine dresser. Our job is to abide. I believe this analogy was given to me for me. I do not believe this analogy was given to me to use on you. I don't believe that. I believe it was given for reflection, for them to understand this, their relationship with Jesus, not as some historical commentary about a believer. I don't, I don't see that. Our job is to abide. The fruit that we produce is the fruit of the vine. So if he's the vine, what are the fruits of Jesus? What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Did you hear judgment in there? Is that a fruit? No. Since when do the branches decide they're the gardener? I don't believe that's the point of this. I believe the point is this. Over time, if you truly abide, and we're going to look at see what that is, there will be fruit. And in the end, the vine dresser will gather you into the barn. And at the end of the day, if there is no abiding, there will be no fruit. There's no life because life is found in abiding in the vine, period. 
Jesus is telling them, this is gonna be a marathon and not a sprint. I am coming for you, but for a period of time, longer than you ever could have imagined, you must abide in me and I in you. And do you realize that's a command? It's imperative. It's an imperative. It's a command. This is our responsibility to abide in Christ. Do you realize how fond of this word John is? He uses it 50 times in his writing and 11 times in this chapter. Sometimes I read it, I'm like, oh my gosh, abide, 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 abide. What is he saying? Abide, abide, abide. Like I was hiking and all I get, abide, abide. Why do we repeat something? I mean, honestly, he's like, if you don't remember one thing out of the entire thing that I'm trying to tell you, you will remember one word. And if you figure that, abide, abide. This is what I want you to do. So underlying this this term abide is the idea of belief. And we're gonna break this down. We're gonna continue next week. But let me just give you this. Underlying the meaning of the term is the idea of belief. We're gonna, we have seen it already in scripture. We've seen it in the negative and we've seen it in the positive. Let me show you. John 5, 38. So we're talking about abide, believe, starts with belief, okay? In John 5, 38, it says, you do not have his word abiding in you. So it's gonna use the negative. You do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him who sent him. So why do they not ha- why are they not abiding? Why don't they have the word abiding in them? They don't believe. Okay? So there's an underlying theme here that abiding begins with what? Belief. Here it, here it is in the positive. John 6:56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, okay? So this is a physical example that he's giving after the feeding of the 5,000. So abiding first begins with belief. My word or me, he says, is not in you because you don't believe. And then he flips it to the positive. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. You must believe or eat my provision, which is the sacrificial work of God. So are you getting it? The beginning of abiding, of us abiding in him and him abiding in me, is a belief that he is who he said he is and that he did what he said he would do. It is believing his sacrificial work for me. Abiding starts with that. If you do not believe that, he is not in you and you are not in him. It starts with belief. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I have written these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and by believing you would have life. Where does life start? It starts with belief. There is no no abiding if there's not true belief. Life is produced by belief. Now it's gonna be more. He's gonna tell them and we're gonna look at it. Starts with belief, right? And then he's gonna tell them 
that for our, um, what's the word? I've lost it. Provision, right? We have to, uh, we have to abide. And there's also an element that over time there is endurance, endurance. That the idea of abiding, yes, it starts with belief. And being abiding in him, all of our provision comes from him. But there's actual an endurance and a, a continuing on as evidence of the abiding. All right, we're, that's a lot. We're gonna look at it. But what, bottom line, let me end it because this isn't the ending. Bottom line, he's telling this, them this to comfort them and to give them peace. He's gonna talk about three things, which by the way, happen to be fruit. My peace I live, leave with you, that your joy may be full, and that love, I love you. Like the, All of that is the fruit of the Spirit. And he's trying to comfort them. He's telling them what's coming so that they have confidence. But now he's telling them how they're going to survive it and how they're going to be effective. And it's going to be over time. Yes, Peter's going to betray, I mean, deny over time. But he believes and God will produce fruit. I do not believe it's possible to know Jesus and be no fruit. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He is the vine dresser. He is the one that will determine. And the fact is, if you are actually abiding in the vine, the vine produces life. And if you aren't, there will be death. He doesn't kill it's already dead. He cuts it away so that life can produce. There's a lot to this chapter. I mean, it is huge. And we have barely just begun. So it looks like we're going to be here for a little bit. And I don't have a whole lot of weeks. So I don't know what to tell you about that. We're just going to do the best we can. All right. So all of this was given as comfort. Um, I personally do not believe in any way that you may lose your salvation. I think at the end of the day, the fruit will prove there is life. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. Lord, I thank you that our weeks vary. Just like your teaching did with your disciples. This is serious stuff because these are the ends of your days with them. These are important words that you wanted them to know to carry them through the time because the fact is what was coming was going to be hard. The world was going to persecute them because of you. And so they needed to love one another and they needed to have the confidence that you loved them. And it wasn't all on their shoulders. That the key was that you would still do the work, the same work, but you would do it through them. And how would you do it? What is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to abide in the vine. And if we do, we don't manufacture the fruit. We don't even inspect the fruit. We just abide in the vine and the fruit of that vine comes out in us. So God help us to hold on. Help us to understand and to believe 
and to trust you for your provision. And above all, Lord, I pray that we will endure, that no matter what comes our way, no matter what, we have a solid belief. We sure love you. Be with us as we leave in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.